thanks so much, Hans, for, for joining me today. Super excited to talk about your mission and vision of, of Carbion and, and kind of the journey you've been on thus far with it. Congrats on winning uh, the X Prize with it. That's uh, pretty amazing so early on. Before we get into Carbion, talk about your journey and your mission to even get to the point where you wanted to start something like this. Yeah, I think I've always been inspired by the ability uh, to transform renewable electricity into uh, solar fuels. And because I've been, I've been um, now the last 15 years, I think, in areas, different areas of uh, renewable energy and the energy transition. But the specific ability to turn electricity in, uh, into hydrocarbons, renewable hydrocarbons, always struck my attention as a great way to enable that transition. Uh, because our economy right now is running, of course, on hydrocarbons, and these are fossil. Mm -hmm. uh, but the ability to make them renewable, uh, uh, basically by, by capturing CO2 from air and, and green hydrogen, caught my attention already more than 10 years ago. And I think pretty much from that moment onwards, uh, I think I've been wanting to do something in that area to enable that because it was very expensive. It yeah. still is very expensive. So I, th I think that's like 10 years ago, that, that's where things started uh, for me in this uh, domain. Well, when the idea, I mean, obviously this takes a lot of, a lot of minds coming together and I think right time, right place as well. You know, I think maybe 10 years ago, it was maybe just not the, the right time and, and space for a lot of people's eyes on, on this type of thing, you know, obviously funding coming into the sector pretty big. So it, se it seems like the timing ha has been right. I, I guess, when was that timing right for you and the team? Did you go to, you know, a co-founder or a friend and say, hey, let's start something. Talk about that initial thought process of just actually wanting to do it, but then actually doing it. Yeah, I think my plan and my original plan was certainly not to start a company with it. Uh, I was working for a research institute and I was kind of thinking that uh, we would simply explore it from a technical point of view within the research institute and then later look for a company that wanted maybe to do something commercially with that. But actually the research institute were, was concentrating or was actually focusing on concentrated uh, flue glass capturing, so not air capturing. Mm -hmm. And then soon thereafter came the suggestion to, uh, to start a spin-off company. But of course, the consequence was that the spin-off company uh, the last few years had to do lots of the research uh, itself. And so normally uh, you start from somewhat more mature research. In this case, the, the research was very immature. Mm -hmm. uh, the technology was very uh, immature. I think we were at the level of an idea. Maybe we had some data, but not so much. So um, it was actually a journey the last two years to collect the necessary data to prove the principle. And it's only now that we can start thinking about making an actual machine out of that for us we were kind of forced into doing a, a startup mode um, yeah. and uh, but looking back to it now i think it was the right thing to do for sure yeah yeah the idea of carbion is is what it is building a machine in a building outdoors i guess let's start at the basic level of how does direct air capture work sort of what is it right at a very foundational level yeah so direct air capture so it's filtering co2 out of the atmosphere out of air and, and our machine is, is meant to do it indeed at the uh, size of the earth, so to speak. Yeah? So just to, to mitigate uh, climate change. Yeah? So to, uh, we went from 300 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere up to today, I think around 420. Uh, so that's the result of 150 years of uh, industrial use of mm -hmm. fossil sure. uh, uh, food fuels. Of, and I think we need to undo that. 
<clears throat> if you don't undo that, the climate change will, will continue for many hundreds of years. So uh, this technology is really meant uh, to, to tackle that challenge, how to do the big cleanup, uh, how to get back to 300 parts per million like it was in pre-industrial times. And so it's, it's meant, and also the XPRIZE actually challenged uh, the different competitors to describe how this can be done at that scale. Because not every technology is able to do it at that scale. You need to really design for that and have in mind that you want to do it at this huge scale. Because at small scale, like submarines or space crafts, you know, it can be done already since many decades. But, but doing it at a large scale, so the level of the, uh, the, yeah, the Earth, uh, Earth's atmosphere. That's a challenge uh, in its own, and that's also the challenge that we uh, that we took on. The principle being is that you use a machine to sequester carbon out the atmosphere, and then to to do to do what exactly? Right? Does it does it sit there? Like, how do you? I guess you then use it. I said what you get is a CO2 gas. Then there's different things you can do with it. I mean, if you want to do negative emissions, so going back from 420 today, parts per million to 300 parts per million, you need to store it somehow. Okay. Uh, and the most obvious thing to do is, is store it underground in, in empty gas fields, empty oil and gas fields, for example. So there is a huge storage capacity. Mm. Uh, and if you store the CO2 gas uh, in those empty oil and gas fields, it will stay there for hundreds of millions of years. So that's kind of a mm. storage, uh, geological storage facility that we have uh, for free or almost for free. Uh, it's kind of sending CO2 back from where it came in a way, right? Interesting. Um, yeah. The other thing, you, of course, you can do is, is make indeed... Uh, um, renewable fuels so you can actually uh, with green hydrogen and, and co2 from air you can turn that into hydrocarbons uh, that could be uh, aviation fuel for example that could mm -hmm. be uh, any type of chemical uh, basically everything that we derive today from fossil oil and gas we can do with green hydrogen and green co2 and uh, so this will be transforming the whole industry uh, the petrochemical industry and it will help us to get to net zero emissions eh? because there is two things there is first uh, avoiding that we put even more co2 in the atmosphere today we put like 40 billion ton of co2 per year mm. In the atmosphere so that has to stop of course and one way to stop it is to stop uh let's say um, using fossil oil and gas and this can be possible with uh, the combination of green hydrogen and green co2 because these two elements allow to make gasoline uh, diesel aviation fuel wh whatever you need basically and we can actually stop uh using oh, fossil so you oil can still you could still make in theory you could still make fossil fuels without all that sort of dirtiness that goes into making them sort of the old school way. Yeah, but we don't call it fossil fuel. Right, then, of course, right, because right. And renewable fuel, but chemically speaking, it's exactly the same. Mm, um, it's just a clean way to make it's a clean way to gas, make, right? and it doesn't add to CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere right? because in a way you capture CO2 from the atmosphere and together with green hydrogen, you turn it, for example, into aviation fuel. Mm -hmm. When the aviation fuel is used, of course, the CO2 is released again in the atmosphere, but that's circular. Right? So it's the, it doesn't mm -hmm. add CO2. Right. It's just uh, neutral. We call that uh, CO2 neutral um, usage of CO2. So that has to happen, I think, right? because it offers a solution for uh, sector like aviation or, or shipping and which have uh, troubles using batteries or other type of uh, of energy storage uh, means 
So they would be helped with uh, renewable fuels to get to net zero emission. And then the second use is really storing it underground to do net negative uh, emissions. Eh? So to do right. the big cleanup, so to speak. But going to net zero, eh, of course, we can do it with uh, electrical vehicles and with batteries. But for some, for some industries, it's not possible to use uh, electrical like air, airlines airlines would be the perfect airlines one. would be a perfect example eh? so they're desperate and they want to do net zero but they don't see how they can do it right uh, unless uh, we are able to make uh, jet fuel aviation fuel based on green hydrogen and green co2 and you see a lot of of companies now focusing on the production of these green uh, fuels because they think indeed it will push out the fossil fuels in the long term and is that how far i guess are we away from enabling some planes to run on this rather than traditional fossil fuel. like are we a decade away from that are we five years 15 years away from at least like let's say you know a fleet or something like like that like, you know klm or delta has you know three planes now that run on hydrocarbons like is that within graphs soon commercial production of these uh, green fuels uh, in a way today it's already happening but then based on biomass eh? so you have these biofuels and to some extent eh, they are blending these biofuels uh, with the existing fossil fuels and, and okay. that, that already works so like a hybrid a little bit of... it's a kind of hybrid eh? and i think blending uh, biofuel or renewable fuel with uh, fossil fuel will probably be the the default way how yeah. to go through the transition you just Sure. level of uh, of renewable fuel uh, up to the end that uh, maybe by 2050 it's a hundred percent renewable fuel and there is no fossil component anymore in that fuel I think that's the the the, the way I think uh, we can go through that transition hey, it's uh, it's a gradual thing the more you can produce uh, the more you can blend in and the less fossil uh, fuel uh, you need so you can do it in a gradual way spread over the coming 30 years because for sure it's going to take yeah. I think uh, 30 years Years, uh, before uh, we're even close to a level of 100% renewable fuel. So it's going to take time. It's going to take uh, uh, decades to, to achieve that goal. But, but it's for sure feasible to do. And the timing is a bit uncertain because it depends on economic uh, numbers, like the cost of it, etc. But right. it's a certainty that this transition will happen. Yep. So we can do it in a smooth way, in a, in a transition way, by blending in just higher and higher percentages of renewable fuel in the fuels that we use for aviation or any other purpose. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the transition we saw with cars. We didn't go straight to electric vehicles. We had about, I guess, two decades of, of hybrid vehicles, probably. And yeah. now, now you see the transition really where every car company is really going straight to electric, right? Fleets are, you know, they're, they're changing their whole companies to where everybody will probably be electric here in, in 20 yeah. years or so others earlier than that so i think it seems to be similar maybe through through aviation and in other uh, forms of transportation it's indeed important to find a, a transition path eh? because in aviation yeah. the lifetime of uh, airplanes is typically 30 40 years and so mm -hmm. If, if you've just invested in, in airplanes, new airplanes, you're not going to throw them away yeah. um, anytime soon eh? because uh, the business case doesn't afford that. So they will keep running for the coming 30, 40 years and they run on, on aviation fuel. So the only way right. to make the net zero is to produce um, net zero aviation fuel. And then, um, and that enables basically those this economy and not to be, uh, uh, I mean, to continue its operations, to continue offering that service, but no longer at the cost of uh, climate change. I like to think of things in in sort of parallels, and the parallel that I'm I'm seeing now is sort of the work being done 
in the oceans with sort of cleanup efforts, you know, trying to get plastic and, and waste out of our oceans, then the sort of transformation into actually then creating products from this waste, from this plastic that we are cleaning up the oceans. And then we actually, actually turn these things into to usable items again. And it seems like the same sort of thing happened it's just with our with our air, right? We're sort of CO2 being the parallel being the garbage of the air, right? Or, or right. sort of the plastic in the air. We're, we're cleaning the air out, but then also this opportunity to create products or create other usable items from that. It really creates a nice little ecosystem of clean manufacturing and clean products, kind of this flywheel effect that I see happening kind of with the oceans and plastic products. And it seems like mm -hmm. this might be the evolution from what direct air capture brings. It's a nice uh, analogy indeed uh, that, that you described there. And um, so, yeah, uh, the, the excess plastic can be used uh, to clean up. Uh, I mean, if you clean up the oceans, this all this plastic could be recycled, of course, mm -hmm. so avoids making even new plastics. And the same with CO2. And so there is no need whatsoever to uh, to mine for, for fossil CO2 anymore, right. or fossil right. carbon. We can perfectly recycle whatever is already in the atmosphere was this just from i don't have obviously I, have, I don't have a science background but has this always been a known theory or, or a known hypothesis that has been out there it's just we didn't have the technology and the ability to capture it or is this sort of a new discovery that we're, we're actually we can do this um, efficiently i think the awareness today the, this awareness is 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 getting bigger Probably some people were already aware of it uh, 25 years ago or longer. I mean, in a way, uh, I know, for example, that in the military, like these, uh, and the ships that have the airplanes, they, they, uh, the fuel for the airplanes, they make it based on the electricity that, that, that comes from the nuclear reactors they have on board. Mm. And this electricity they use to, um, to make fuels by using just ocean water. So the, the, hmm. the notion, the notion of, of uh, turning electricity into fuels based on ocean water or air or whatever exists already for a very long time. But it was just too expensive to apply it right. on a large scale. Eh? So I, I think the fact that this could technically be done, this awareness is already around for quite a while. The awareness that it could also be done in a way that can compete price-wise with mm -hmm. fossil fuels this is rather recent uh, in a sense that there have been many disbelievers, people that claim that uh, the cost of renewable electricity and the cost of uh, green hydrogen and CO2 from air in particular would be way too high to ever compete with fossil fuels. Right. And that is now changing. And now people start to realize in particular for getting CO2 out of air, that it can be an affordable uh, technology that, that prices could be low, uh, low enough. Uh, to actually offer a road towards renewable fuels that can compete with the price of fossil fuels. And 10 years ago, everybody would have declared you completely crazy uh, <laughs> by saying this. And today, there is many, many more people now that truly believe that this can happen. And uh, so the awareness is growing, eh? but um, we come from a long way, that's for sure. I had spoken to uh, the, the founder and CEO of Ether Diamonds, and what they're doing is using direct air capture to actually create diamonds, right? And, yeah. You know, jewelry collection online, right? So you're, you're taking the mining out of, of that. So you're taking the destruction of earth. It's mm -hmm. a messy industry dealing with sort of, you know, forced labor and things like that. What are the possibilities from not just using it as a, a fuel, right? But if we can make, you know, diamonds from it, right? We can make 
a lot of different things. It can be made to use uh, construction materials, for example. Mm, huge, yeah. Um, yeah. So right now with the housing yeah. prices, we can't have enough materials because the supply chain is so sicked up. You know, we can if we make that, if you can make that closer to home in anywhere yeah. you are in the world, then you wouldn't have to deal with these long waits. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Also in farming, eh? it's it's um, very much wanted in farming applications in greenhouses. They use mm -hmm. a lot of CO2, of course, mm -hmm. to foster the growth of the of the crops and and especially now with indoor farming. Eh? So which is the, the, the new industrial revolution in, in farming, yeah. uh, growing crops in completely closed environments. And so well, you guys have, have, have done that here in the Netherlands, right? You're kind of the, the kings of it, so to speak. This is yeah. kind of the capital of it. <laughs> Or farming, right? Yeah, yeah, indeed. The Netherlands is pretty much the capital, indeed, of uh, of greenhouses and also indoor farming. So, and we know from that industry that for them, CO two is a key resource. And uh, right now, they get it from the chemical industry. But uh, if they could harvest it from air, that would even be uh, better and and much more convenient because then they can put these indoor farms anywhere. Because transportation of CO two is very expensive. I want to talk a little bit about the, the actual application of doing doing this and. You know, when you look at solar farms, you look at wind farms, you need a ton of land. Is it going to be the same for, for CO2 capturing? Or it seems like the ability to actually have more people involved in this. I always go really crazy with things, but it, it seems like more people can be involved with this. Like even at a residential area or a small business area where they can put something on their roof or something like that and store CO2 for carbon offsets or to, you know, sell it to, to somebody to make something, whatever it may be. Do we need these big, big swaths of land, like these other renewable energies? Is there a way more people to get involved in, in this sort of mechanism because you perhaps don't need these thousands of acres of land to, to do stuff with? Yeah, there is for sure a way to bring it also to residential users. For example, the other day I was discussing about um, a possible way of, of making a small residential system whereby excess uh, electricity, for example, from your mm -hmm. solar panels on your roof in the summer, uh, you can transform that to, um, to methane. Mm -hmm. um, as a storage, uh, so and, and then you can use, of course, the methane in the winter to to mm -hmm. heat your house, and uh, so that's a way, for example, to get less uh, dependent on on uh, on fossil methane uh, for for heating purposes, um, and and uh, yeah, in, in theory, it's possible to make these small residential systems whereby basically everybody can have its own storage of methane and. Huh. Uh, reduce your footprint uh, in this case, because uh, there is, of course, a huge imbalance uh, between um, the electricity that you have in summertime with solar and the energy you need in wintertime to heat uh, the houses. So I think there is many ways to involve also, uh, let's say, residential users in, in this. There will, of course, be also bigger farms. Sure. The footprint of the technology is actually not too bad. And we once calculated that with the size of a typical uh, football uh, field, uh, you can capture up yep. to a million ton uh, a year. And that's already, uh, let's say, the equivalent uh, emissions, yearly emissions of uh, 100,000 uh, people. Mm. That, that's, that's certainly not bad if you think like, okay, so if you give every town uh, basically um, an installation yeah. A football pitch, you know, yeah. you're, you're done. So that's something that people can imagine like, okay, why not, right? I mean, right. This, this, is, this is not uh, excessive in terms of, uh, of land uh, of land use. But so, yeah, I mean, future will tell, of course, but, but uh, it is possible kind of to put it in your backyard, so to speak. Right, yeah. So 
we talked about a lot of the, the good stuff, right? It's all it's all really really positive and exciting. I guess what are what are some of the things that people are thinking about? Thinking about perhaps even even governments where you know I, I'm from you know, the southern part of the United States where you have hurricanes a lot. And so the positive from this is that you know if you can you know capture this and then you can run when people I mean tens of thousands, hundred thousands people lose electricity every year and sometimes for days, even weeks, right? Some people yeah. have generators, some people don't. And obviously if there's a way to, to have sort of a clean generator that doesn't depend on gas and you can kind of use it, be mobile with it, like that's huge. But I guess with, with storms, right? We're talking methane, we're talking, you know, gas and science and all this stuff. It seems like there's some type of blowing things up <laughs> that I'm missing. Like the danger of, I guess, whatever, like a, a lightning storm or something hitting uh a car, a CO2 uh, capture machine or something like that. I guess, what are the dangers of, of this side? Or what are things thinking about, whether it's founders and businesses and governments? Like, what are, what could be the negative aspect of, of scaling this up? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the direct air capture machine itself, uh, there, there is no explosion risk because it's basically, um, uh, yeah, air and CO2. I mean, these are non-explosive uh, gases. Uh, of course, once you start mixing with hydrogen, Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, of course, some risks uh, involved, and, uh, and that's also probably the reason why probably the initial use cases will be more in an industrial context, eh, where you can uh, yeah. handle these safety uh, hazards in a, in, a, in a better way. But I see no reason why it could not be handled uh, on a smaller scale and on a residential scale. I mean, it yeah. is happening. There are trials uh, with, with this, and uh, I think people gain a lot of experience with uh, safety handling of hydrogen or, or hydrocarbons. Yeah, it's 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 for sure possible, and of course, nothing is without a risk. And I mean, catastrophes like hurricanes and things like that. Okay, yeah, you need to take precautions. That's for sure. But I, I I see no reason why it could not be done, or why this would be a particular new hazard that we don't have already. Let's say in our day to day environment. So it's not going to bring any particular new hazard. Uh, I think. So well, I spoke a little bit about governments for a second there. Is there is there a transition from, again, Netherlands is much different, or the EU policies might be much different than let's the US or other parts of the world. But like, how is I guess the transition talking with you know governments about the possibilities of this? Like, is is everybody on board? Obviously, there's you know tax incentives that can go or funding from governments to help fund this transition. Like it sort of deal with electric vehicles and and other forms of renewable energy. There's a lot of subsidies that go to that. Would that be the same type of, of system you think approach here is, is government involvement? And have you spoken with like, I guess, what's the interaction and conversations with them? And right now, we don't have a very active uh, conversation with policymakers. We are a member uh, of some organizations that do. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, here in Europe, you have the negative emission platform, uh, which discusses with policymakers about yeah, the type of policies that need to put in place to enable uh, negative emissions, uh, for example, but the sure. same goes for renewable fuels. I think <clears throat> the only way to, to get us through that transition is that policymakers impose a certain ratio of renewable fuels uh, compared to fossil fuels uh, over time. And that they say, okay, between now and 2050, yep. we're going to go from the current 10%, let's say, all the way to 100%. And that's the roadmap that they need to impose on producers of these uh, fuels. Uh, and that, that I think, is a necessary policy framework to, uh, to make it happen and so that everybody uh, is forced uh, or that there is no false competition uh, between 
let's say, those that sell primarily fossil fuels versus those that sell primarily uh, renewable fuels. Uh, so I think there should be um, a level plane for everyone, um, and, and that can only be done with the right policies. So, and I think policymakers are more and more aware that indeed this is the only way to make it happen. Uh, if you want to do it in a, in a competitive way where the rules are the same for everyone, you just need to make the rules very clear and you just need to set these targets and, and, uh, and impose these targets uh, like they do for the car industry, right? I mean, they, they, yeah, sure, sure. they tell the car industry to produce cars that on the average only produce mm-hmm. uh, so much CO2 per, per, uh, per mile or per kilometer. And, um, and, and that is the same for every car manufacturer. So I think the same should be there for all the producers of, uh, of fuels and chemicals. And that uh, they 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 have the same restriction in terms of the amount of uh, renewable fuels or chemicals that need to be part of their entire portfolio between now and 2050. And and I think that's very important to have that discussion and to have that policy in place uh, as soon as possible. I want to end a little bit on the the future here, and I know it's a exciting time, and it's it's just really you know ideas are spinning and. and execution is being done on a lot of different levels. But when you look at, and we talked a little bit about further out, but let's look maybe five to 10 years. What are some of the goals that you hope you and the team can accomplish? And maybe what is down that pipeline? What can we see as, as human beings, as citizens, right? And maybe even consumers, like in that five to 10 year period, I guess, what do you think is possible with some of the goals you want to succeed on? I think if you look indeed five to 10 years in the future, then we should start seeing the onset of the production at large scale of these renewable fuels based on uh, uh, water and air, so to speak. And then it should really become clear that, okay, there is no stopping anymore. uh, And maybe the blending in will only be 10% or less. Uh, by 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 2030, but but uh, we should have seen the onset of the S curve uh, where this transition is is really starting, and I think that would be a, already a, a very nice uh, goal to to set out for uh, for for 10 years from now. It will take some time to build all these production facilities, um, but this is already taking place, or at least the pilots are being built. But the real scale-up of these pilots and and really starting to have a significant uh, portion of the worldwide fuel production uh, being renewable, I hope that 10 years from now we can see the onset uh, and that it's not just three numbers behind the comma, but that it starts to be visible. Amazing. One last question here. We mentioned the uh, XPRIZE earlier a little bit. What was... I guess, what was your pitch to them? I guess, what, what kind of separated you and the team from, from other submitters? We, we use a unique technology in the sense that um, we developed uh, a material that can absorb and release CO2 extremely fast, mm-hmm. up to uh, 100 times faster, let's say, than, than known uh, sorbents. And that means with the same amount of material, uh, you can do much more cycles and and much more CO2 in a certain time span. Mm. Uh, So the machine gets smaller and and therefore gets more cost effective. At the CapEx cost, let's say, per ton of CO2 is is lower if you work with a a, a very fast uh, material. And I think probably that's what, what differentiated us from some of the other approaches. And we could, uh, in this way, easily explain that things will get cheaper uh, because the capex cost will be lower. Um, and um, yeah, that that's our story. That's the innovation that we bring to the market. And and apparently, this was uh, this was convincing to uh, for yeah, the jury. It yeah. is, yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much, Hans. Amazing conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time. 
best of luck to you and the team for for the next decades to come and and it's really going to be uh really be quite a journey to see the transition on uh everything in the world right it, it's kind of going very quickly but in a much more positive direction it looks like so uh, appreciate you and the team's work and best of luck thanks a lot